Welcome to Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Father Milton Walsh, who holds the doctorate in sacred theology from the Gregorian University in Rome. For many years, he taught theology at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California. He's the author of Second Friends, C.S. Lewis and Ronald Knox in Conversation, and Ronald Knox as Apologist, with Laughter and the Popish Creed. With Father Milton Walsh, we're going inside the pages of In Memory of Me, a meditation on the Roman canon, published by Ignatius Press. Welcome, Father Walsh. Thank you. In Memory of Me, a meditation on the Roman canon. It is such a beautiful book. I just wish it could be in the hands of every Catholic, especially right now, as we go forward and celebrate the Mass. I absolutely agree, of course, as the writer of it, but I, I do think that this new translation uh, of the Mass is an invitation for us all to to pause and appreciate the depth and the beauty of the prayers of the liturgy. And I'm hoping that this book will be a contribution in some way to, to that deepening uh, for people in the pew as well as for priests. With this new opportunity to really dive into what we are saying, what we are praying, just the invitation to be able to enter into the Roman canon is something I don't know if we really even appreciate the value of what that is. I mean, even the term Roman canon can be very confusing, even for the Catholic that's been going to church for 40 years. Uh, What is it that exactly? Well... The, the Roman canon is now also known as the first Eucharistic prayer. Uh, we have several Eucharistic prayers, but for many, many centuries, it was in Western Europe the practically the only Eucharistic prayer. And uh, it, it developed, uh, we're talking now on the eve of the Feast of St. Ambrose, and, and the earliest record we have of this prayer is in his writing. So this goes back to the 4th century. It was already, most of the prayer was, was already in place then, the core of it. But then over the next couple of hundred years, the, it, it grew, and uh, the final finishing touches were put on it in the late 6th century by St. Gregory the Great. And uh, this is the Eucharistic prayer that St. Augustine brought to England, and uh, it was this prayer that... that uh, uh, anyone my age, I'm 60, anyone my age uh, or older, when we were growing up, this was the prayer of, of the, uh, the Mass for us. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's got much richness and theological and biblical depth to it, but, but it needs to be studied. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel that, that uh, you know, we, we pray the Scriptures hopefully on our own and reflect on them so that when we come and hear the Scriptures and the liturgy, they strike us more deeply. Uh, similarly, you know, we spend time in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament privately, and I think that can deepen our liturgical experience of, of the Eucharist. And I think, particularly in light of the new translation of the Missal, uh, that we as Catholics are also invited to take some time to prayerfully reflect on the prayers that we offer in the liturgy, because the Church has disp- distilled a great deal of wisdom uh, into those prayers, uh, but we need to reflect on them, because when we're celebrating the Mass, of course, it all goes on very quickly. So I hope that this book will be an invitation for uh, 
Catholics uh, and other people too, but for primarily for Catholics to to really delve into the the beauty and the spiritual depth of this ancient prayer of the Church. Well, we're called to a full and active participation in the Mass, and I think for years, many of us felt that that full and active participation meant as many people doing as much as they can in the Mass. So everybody, there were greeters, and everyone was ushers, and while those roles are very important and, and very nice to be able to have, that's not exactly what the Church meant with full and active participation, was it? Not just that. I, I think, you know, it was, what we've experienced is an overreaction uh, <clears throat> to what was an odd situation, when you think of it, that we had gotten used to the low mass as kind of the norm, which meant the priest was at the altar with a server, mm-hmm. and uh, he was celebrating the mass. And I think what what the Second Vatican Council, and in fact, going back to Pius X at the beginning of the 20th century, he's the one who first came up with this idea of full and active participation, and it's precisely why he encouraged Gregorian chant, because this was music that, you know, the simpler chants, everyone could sing. So I think, yes, there was a need to involve uh, a variety of ministries in the celebration of the liturgy, uh, but, you know, full and active doesn't mean everyone doing the same thing. You know, one of the great beauties that, that struck me as I as I prayed over and researched the Roman canon. Uh, of course, the priest is offering the prayer, but uh, all throughout he refers to himself and to the community, that it's very clearly that the whole assembly, but we're not just a mob. You know, we, we have different roles and functions within that community, and, and I think that's a, on a deeper level. It's an invitation for us to see that uh, the liturgy is a dialogue, uh, not just a dialogue between the priest and the people, which certainly is that, that dialogue is a reflection of the life of the Trinity, you know, that the dialogue of praise and worship that, you know, is at the heart of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, is what we are, in a certain sense, acting out with a variety of roles and uh, in the liturgy, and and that this prayer is is the centerpiece, the Eucharistic prayer of any uh, any of the masses is really the centerpiece of that uh, dialogue, which means that different people do different things in a dialogue, and there are times when our silence and our prayer is active participation. Mm. I, I suppose that's where I was going with that. Is that I, we may undervalue the importance of our shared prayer even if there isn't a response on our part in a particular part of the canon, it is the priest that is offering it with us and for us to the Father. It, it is still something our hearts have to share in, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we tend <clears throat> today, we, we're a culture that is bombarded with information. I mean, we're talking on the radio, mm-hmm. and uh, we're bombarded with that information. And, and certainly there is a, a place for, for information, but uh, the Holy Spirit moves on, on deeper levels as well. And I think that uh, you, know, one of the, you know, one of the hallmarks of a, of a balanced liturgy is that there is silence, and there is music, and there are times when we listen to the readings. That's active participation. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean we all get up and read the first reading together. We listen to it. And similarly, when the priest is offering the prayer, which he is doing 
uh, on behalf of the congregation in their name, uh, our silent reflection on that uh, is active participation. We are entering into it. Now, I think that puts a, a greater responsibility on us priests because uh, we need to then proclaim these prayers in a way that invites uh, that prayerful reflection. Uh, I, I feel sad that the Roman canon isn't used very much, and it seems that at least for many years, you know, the, the book would spring open to Eucharistic Prayer too, because that was the shortest. Mm. And uh, you know, certainly for a weekday Mass, that's very appropriate, but it seems to me that if, if the Eucharistic Prayer is the heart of the Mass, which it is, we should be taking our time to prayerfully uh, offer that prayer and, and be willing to quietly reflect on it a bit. It really causes us humility, doesn't it? Because when we do have that very beginning, as you mentioned, it talks about essentially all of salvation history and where we're going, that, it, that it's not just about us, that there's a much bigger picture here. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it literally goes all the way back to Abel and uh, through the Old Testament. And, of course, at the center of everything is Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross. But that continues to, to be expressed through the lives of the, of the saints. You know, in the Roman canon, with the exception of Our Lady, and then, of course, St. Joseph, who was added by Pope John the Twenty-Third, all of the saints listed in that canon, then women and children, were all martyrs. And they recognized that that uh, Christ's death on the cross, of course, is our salvation. No question about that. That's the one perfect sacrifice. But we are called in different ways to uh, embrace that sacrifice in our own lives. So it is. It, it, it reaches through time, and it also reaches through space. You know, we may not think about this, but in every Eucharist, following the pattern in the Roman canon... Uh, we mention our bishop by name, and that's because the bishop is the, the center sacramentally of our local church. And we mention our Holy Father, because as the successor of St. Peter, he is a, a visible sign of unity for the whole Catholic Church. So it not only is, is universal in time, going all the way back to Abel and all the way to the return of Christ in glory, it's also universal uh, temp- in terms of space, that it's not just our parish that's offering this Eucharist, much less just the priest at the altar. We are in communion with, with the Church of all ages and with the Catholic Church all throughout the world offering the same Eucharist on their altars. Father, there is also this great sense of that wholeness, I mean, of the greatness of the Church and that connection, as you said, with those who lead us and those who have gone before us, but also with the visible and the invisible, and that whole acknowledgement of the bringing of the angels. That's Just, right. Oh, yes. the imagery. The, the, the angels appear twice in this Eucharistic prayer, uh, <clears throat> once as we end the first part of the Mass, which unfortunately for us in English is called a preface, and I say unfortunately because that seems to suggest it actually comes before the prayer, but as I explained in the book, that's not what the word preface means here. But as we come to the end of our thanksgiving for what God has done in this or that aspect of salvation history in the the preface, 
we find ourselves caught up into the worship of the angels in heaven. As we sing the holy, 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 we are joining with their voices in the heavenly worship. And then there's that very beautiful prayer, again, a very humble prayer, uh, later in the canon, where uh, we ask God, we ask, of course, we're praying to God the Father, we ask him to have his angel carry our sacrifice to the altar in heaven. Well, of course, the altar in heaven is Christ himself. So again, it's uniting our earthly worship with uh, the worship that Scripture tells us is uh, going on in heaven eternally. Mm. That acknowledgement that it is happening at the same time as we're experiencing it. I, I, I think this particular prayer of the Eucharistic prayers, and of course, the great, as it's known as the Roman canon, I think we need to reclaim that and use that more often, I think, in, sure. in, in expressing that. We've lost a sense as well that what's happening at a Sunday liturgy, whether it's in Nebraska or Texas or even in Italy, anywhere around the world, no matter what time it's happening, it's the same liturgy that's all connected. That's right. And, and I think that, you know, in, in olden days, uh, we, we had a more visible sense of that in our churches with statues of the saints and, and or icons. Certainly the Eastern tradition has a great sense of that, that, that uh, you know, we are, we are taking part in that eternal worship that is being offered in heaven. It's a foretaste of, of heaven. And that, in turn, doesn't blind us to the need to live it out here on earth. I mean, one of the themes that runs through this Eucharistic prayer is we keep asking God to accept our sacrifice. And, and you think, well, in one sense, what we're offering is Christ's sacrifice. That's the sacrifice we're offering. That's the sacrifice the Mass is, is Christ's sacrifice made present. But it also becomes our sacrifice when we unite our lives to his, and that means that we are called to pour out our lives uh, in service for others. So it's not just that we're looking up to the heavens uh, and, you know, and enjoying the beauty of heavenly worship, that we are also constantly, this prayer keeps bringing us back to the, the world in which we live as well. Mm. There's, there's a very beautiful image in, in St. Augustine's writings where he says that in the Old Testament there was a little bit of wisdom that when you went to someone's home, you observed what they served you because you knew you had to reciprocate. And he said, when we come to the church and we see Christ's sacrifice on the altar, we need to study that very carefully because we are called to give the same meal ourselves. We are called to give our lives in obedience to the Father's will for the Father's glory and for the good of our neighbors, and for the whole world, as Christ did. Hmm. It's also in serving the world, I mean, we're giving that, that nourishment, that, that grace to be able to be Christ out in the world as the Church, and to respond to those needs. We also are called to respond to the needs of those who are in the Church suffering. It's those who are in purgatory, that right. are past the ones who have passed on who we need to be reminded they need our prayers yes and and those prayers go back to the very early church you know already in the second century we find people praying for those who have died and now the you know the doctrine of purgatory developed over many centuries but the core of it is there uh because uh 
why would we pray for people who have died if the alternative is, well, either they're saved or they're damned? I mean, if there's nothing else happening, then there's no need to pray for them. But the Church had an intuition from the outset that, uh, you know, God has an image of each of us as he wants us to be, and there are some people who attain pretty close to that image in this life. Uh, we call them the saints. Uh, most of us don't get that close, but we, we certainly trust in God's mercy, and we believe that, you know, we are saved, uh, but we need to be praying for, for the souls of the faithful departed, and, and that's a, a beautiful part of this Eucharistic prayer, uh, of, of a prayer for those who have died, that, uh, you know, who are asleep in Christ, that they may receive refreshment. So again, it brings together our communion with the saints, our communion with the angels, our communion with the whole church on earth, and our communion with our loved ones uh, who have died. And, and I think one of the beauties of the Roman canon is there's a moment in the prayer itself where we pause to pray quietly for our own friends living, our own intentions. And then after the consecration, there's another time when we mention our prayer for the dead that again we pause. And we can reflect on our parents, our spouses, our children who may have gone before us, and, and to recognize that they are alive in Christ, we are alive in Christ, and by our offering this sacrifice for them, we are helping in their final purification so that they can come fully to the banquet of eternal life. It's really extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, if you really ponder this moment, this we've entered into that uh, holy of holies, and when we say it, and we and we may we even proclaim holy, holy, holy Lord. But do we really appreciate the the magnificence that, that uh, that's occurring? And if we aren't, why not? Well, I suppose. You know, it's like anything else in life. If you do things often enough, uh, you can take them for granted. You know, we can think in terms of marriage or friendship, you know, that it's easy for, after a while, to kind of take the other for granted. And, and once in a while, it's good for us. I think that's why we should go on retreat. I think that's why we need to take time in private prayer. I think that's why the new translation of the Mass uh, apart from the text itself, which I think is, is a vast improvement, but even apart from that question, just the fact that we're now having as a, as a community and as individual Catholics to stop and think and reflect, what are we saying? What are these words that, that you know, what's going to happen, I feel, in several months is uh, we'll just rattle off the new form like we used to rattle off the old form. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a certain amount of that's unavoidable, repetitive things, you know, are repetitive. But I think it's an invitation for us to say we will enter more actively and more fully into the celebration of the liturgy if we are also uh, taking the time to prayerfully reflect on, on the prayers of the Mass. Mm. For the young parent with the child who is trying to do their best to honor their their Sunday duty in their heart and to bring them mm -hmm. there. And that that moment for that great Roman canon to occur, what would you want them to be pondering and all the activity? I mean, what are some of the, the key moments that you really feel people should have a, an ear for no matter what? Well, I think that... Uh 
if you begin with the preface, because that's the part that changes. Uh, what, 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 what the Roman canon did was, was to take a basic structure of prayer and then have some variable parts for different times of the year. So I would think the first is after that introductory dialogue between the priest and the people, which is more solemn than the other dialogues between the priest and the people, we then have in the preface what precisely we are celebrating in this season, for example, in Advent. Now, if we listen carefully, the first preface, the preface for Advent that we use for the first half of the season, is really talking about the Lord's return in glory. It's not talking about Christmas. Mm -hmm. The second half of Advent begins to have us prepare more for Christmas. But I would say the first thing to be attentive to is what in this celebration of the Eucharist is the Church inviting us to give thanks for? And that will be in the preface. I think the, the next would be uh, to kind of let the words you know, wash over you, especially if you're handing out Cheerios to your children, wherever <laughs> they keep them quiet. Right. Uh, to let you know that there's, there is a great sense of dignity in the Roman canon, of humility, uh, but also uh, of, of great intimacy. And uh, as I said earlier, there, there are vistas of heavenly worship that are kind of alluded to, but then we'll pause and we'll you know, pray for our own personal needs. Uh, and and to, to, to take that moment to, to enter into that prayer. And, uh, of course, then after, when, when we pray for the dead, I think it's, it's uh, you know, a moment to pray for our departed loved ones. When, when, the, when the priest asks that uh, the angel may take our sacrifice up to heaven, I think that's an invitation for us to, to ask him to take our lives, our children, our, our concerns. Uh, you know, many people today are living on the edge or over the edge. And, and to say, you know, this is the moment for us to be presenting both our joys and our sorrows and our concerns uh, to our Heavenly Father. Mm, beautiful. What would you say to the pastor out there, or even the young associate pastor, who has been using the shorter form for so long and has kind of put the way that the Roman canon for Christmas, Midnight Mass, and maybe the uh, Easter Vigil. Well, I mean, what would right. you say to them? Well, I think I would say this, that um, certainly there, there are many occasions when the shorter prayers are, are very good, you know, and, and that's a pastoral judgment. Uh, but, but I would say this, that the heart of the Eucharist, the heart of the Mass, is the Eucharistic prayer. I think that's, that's simply true, that that's the heart of what we are about. And if that is the case, then, you know, perhaps, I'm standing on, on, on uh, difficult ground here, you know, maybe a little less homily mm -hmm. and a little more time on the Eucharistic prayer, I think what often happens is, you know, we're very conscious of how long the Mass is taking. We've got many Masses on a Sunday morning, and I think that, that our tendency is to, to say, oh, we're, we're running short here, let's, let's go the short route with the prayer. Mm -hmm. I think to say, if in fact the Eucharistic prayer is the heart of our worship, then we should uh, take our time 
and and really make it a prayer that, that people can reflectively enter into. It's not just a prayer that we're saying to consecrate the bread and the wine. Uh, it, it is it's that that happens within this whole Eucharistic prayer. So I think one thing I would say is that we should we should clear more space both for silence in the liturgy and for uh, taking our time with the Eucharistic prayer when the circumstances allow. The other thing I would suggest is, especially now with the, with the new translation coming into effect, this is a great opportunity through, you know, a little teaching, maybe through something in the bulletin. You know, I, I've always found that that was a very good way to kind of give teaching to people, uh, to say, well, let's take... Uh, you know, these prayers, not not just the Roman canon, we could take the different prayers of the Mass and give a little background that people could read on their own so they get a sense of, oh, there's, there's an awful lot going on in these prayers. Mm-hmm. We're really expressing our faith in a very beautiful and, and profound way. Well, I also think that what you've done in Memory of Me, a meditation on the Roman canon, uh, Father Walsh, has given us something that is how can I say it, even a bit beyond Lexio Divina for our hearts, because by even if someone were to take a chapter a week before they went to Mass and just really read your chapter in the book first and then went to Mass and then just waited for that moment to come and then just to kind of savor as you're there and just let the Holy Spirit uh, just enter into that and unite your prayer fully, it, it just can be a, a tremendous experience. Well, I hope so, and if it is, then I, my work here is done. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I would feel that that's, that's precisely what I would want to do in this book, is, you know, to, to help people, people in the pews, as well as the, as the priests, to really savor uh, these prayers. And, and that means we, we need to do that on our own, and piece by piece. Mm-hmm. Amen. It's seeping in the Word uh, in more ways than one. But, exactly. Uh, I wish we had more time, but uh, any final thoughts? Uh, no, I think I would, I would just say that, that uh, we are being invited at this moment with the new translation of the Missal, of, you know, as awkward as it is, to to truly pray the liturgy. And and we pray the liturgy the same way we pray the scriptures. That is, we read them on our own so that when we come together, uh, they can speak to us in a deeper way. And I think, I would hope that this book would be one way that people will be able to pray the liturgy because they will, they will be able to plumb at least some of the spiritual richness that is the patrimony of our Church. Mm. Father Walsh, thank you so much. Well, Chris, I thank you, and I I hope that uh, this conversation will uh, be an encouragement to our listeners to to really rejoice in the beauty of the liturgy of our Church. Amen. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Father Walsh. We've been going inside the pages of In Memory of Me, a meditation on the Roman canon with Father Milton Walsh. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press. To hear this discussion, along with many others, go to www.insidethepages.com. 
I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. 